Welcome back, Cal listeners. This is Methodical Millions, where you can better your future and better yourself. Cal, we've got another awesome guest with us today. So everyone listening, please welcome Donovan Adesaro, all the way from Houston. Donovan, how's it going today? Great. Appreciate you guys having me on. Likewise, thanks for joining us. So, Donovan, I want to ask a question. What gets you excited about life? Uh, that's a great question, starting off like that, huh? Okay. Um, yeah, so a lot of things. I think right now I like to solve problems. I think that that kind of gets me excited, and that can vary widely, but that's my general answer. What makes problems so interesting to solve? I guess it's kind of an obvious question, but let's frame it. Is there something that drives you in a specific way? What is it about problems that makes you want to solve them? Yeah, I just think I've always enjoyed the challenge. So it's just the looking back, you know, the moment when you complete something that was, you know, in some ways difficult or some struggles along the way, you can look back and be, you know, kind of feel good that you're able to navigate the obstacles so it's just that that feeling at the end so to speak is is kind of what i enjoy yeah totally and is it like a step-by-step thing what a problem kind of attracts you and is it a certain area or just anything you see you're just like a fixer in general yeah i think right now i'm focused on solving for financial freedom in a way so you know to have the cash flow or enough to walk away from a from a job so that's my current problem i'm trying to solve no i admire that especially because i think you know a lot of people talk about the path in life and how it's to get a quote-unquote good job but no one ever tells you that that job still has its problems and Mm -hmm. it's almost like a little bit misleading in that no you can't follow your dreams you have to get a good job and meanwhile the good job kind of sucks because it still has problems it's not enough money or it's not on your schedule, right? And yeah. I'll just give you a quick story. You know, as I was saying, like, off air, I've been to Mexico. And the, the thing about traveling that I always find funny. So, you know, whenever someone says, you know, make a lot of money, you can go on a vacation for two weeks. Like, that's still not my time because I'm not going to have fun knowing I'm gone for a week or two and then have to go back to the same thing. It, it feels fake. So, I mean, there's something special about being able to have your mind honed into something and say, I'm going to build my own life. Right. And then like, I find when you peel away those layers of like, I don't care about what others kind of think about me. It's just about building yourself. It kind of frees your mind. Right. And then you can do things. So kudos to you. That's awesome. So tell us a bit about, you know, what, made you come up with this or were you born with it? Was this always something that you thought about life? In terms of like financial freedom? Yeah, like the financial freedom slash problem solving, like where you are today, how did you get to this point? I guess is my question because I, I commend you for it. it's awesome. I think there's an awakening now where, you know, people are A, admitting it that it's possible to be striving, but like, you know, before the internet, I didn't know anyone doing that. And now it seems like it's an awesome thing to do. So what did day one look like? Where did this all come from? I mean, I think it's kind of been building over the course of my life. I mean, just growing up, we had enough to eat every day, but again, we you know, but weren't rich by any means. So I always kind of knew growing up, like, you know, I need to have some sort of reserves or some amount of money that can make me 
feel, you know, safe in terms of like an emergency comes up, I know I can handle it. So that terms of, I guess, security is a better word for it. So there was that always just kind of growing up, seeing, you know, a lot of the issues that come up, parents that we can't do this because we just can't afford it. So things like that have just been, you know, building in, in me since I was young in terms of when I actually really try to put it in action. It was, you know, in 2019, I graduated college. And so I moved down to Houston for my full-time job. And I was getting home from work, you know, working 10, 12-hour days. And I was like, this is kind of depressing just thinking about, oh, I got to do this for, you know, another 40 years. Like, you know, this is what, I guess, you know, this is this it to life, so to speak. It's almost like a, a midlife crisis, but at 23. So I was like, I need to figure out a way to, you know, optimize for doing what I enjoy and have the ability to still you know, pay my bills in terms of like some sort of security blanket. So yeah, that's the, that's kind of the way it came about was you know, finishing college and realizing you didn't want to do the corporate job for 40 years. Yeah, totally. You know, I'd actually a similar mindset. I say I use like 20, for example, just like an absurd amount of time, but I said the same thing. I'd be depressed if I just had that mm-hmm. kind of job because, you know, I think as kids, people grow up with wonder and excitement about the world and anything's possible. And maybe it's the fault of like, things we learn as kids, but somewhere along the line, someone says, Hey, wait, 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 what are you doing? You can't have fun. You're not old. And they assume that all that stuff you have to take away, that it's a trade-off, like you lose your identity. Right. So I was like big into video games and it was like, Oh, you can't play video games. You got to be in school and you got to be this and this. And like, you know, the expectation is so strong on being an adult. And I find that the best way of growing in life is to you know, I say, be curious about the world. You got to learn and discover and try things. You can't just, you know, switch and be a fake person. So it's kind of like an abrupt change and I totally get you, man. So what was the right way to kind of step a little bit into what you want to do on the side? You know, what, what was that like? You just cut out the TV. What was like step one like? Yeah. So step one for me, again, I, I didn't know the right step. So I was basically just on YouTube, like, okay, how do I make money on the side and I was like the Amazon e-commerce stuff came up and a bunch of other things like driving for Uber. I was like, oh, I don't want to do that. And then, you know, I was learning about real estate that kept coming up. And so I started to look a little bit more into it. I was like, oh, wait, I don't have any money. So I looked essentially for an option where I could get into something with relatively low money, but hopefully a good amount of well, it's like everything. You wanted to put as little as possible and make as much as possible. In this case, what I found to be the most optimal way for me in my situation was to buy a duplex to live in one side and rent out the other. And that would significantly help my you know, just savings rate because I wouldn't be paying any rent. And so that would allow me at least to build up a, a sort of safety cushion. So I'm still at the current job. And so that that's how I got started. And then I eventually moved on to doing some some new construction stuff that I'm doing now, but started by just trying to increase my savings rate through buying the duplex to live in one side and rent out the other. Very, very oh, yeah. smart to do that at such a young age. And uh, I applaud you for that because a lot of people think of doing it at, you know, don't pull the trigger because it's just a you know, large commitment when it comes to capital, but it's absolutely brilliant. And it's a start, like you said, you start with one, then get to two, then, you know, turn to four and so what do you have planned right now? I know it's just to start for you, but uh, in terms of development, what, what does that look like? Yeah, and by the way, I guess for the for the duplex, I should have mentioned that I was able to get it with the 0% down loan. So it really only came out of pocket, maybe like three, four grand for closing costs. So even then, like like you said, people are, were scared to pull the trigger, but you know, whatever obstacles are in your way, there's there's a way around it more likely than not. 
Yes, in terms of the development. So right now, I have essentially investors that uh, partner with me, seven new construction duplexes going up right now. And then we've purchased another 10 lots to hopefully do the, the other remaining 10 next year. Yeah. Well, let's just take a pause for a second. You are the king. This is amazing. So yeah. you went from duplex. I, I got to hear the 0% down, but seven. So I'm guessing you pulled some investors to do all seven. And are you running like a, would I call it a real estate fund? Is there a name for it? What would you call that? Yeah. I mean, I guess it's not a traditional fund in the sense where, because each, yeah, I mean, for lack of a better word, that's, that's more or less what it is um, from like a big picture standpoint, but essentially the way it operates is me and an investor have one LLC and then me and the other investor. So each investor I have one LLC with, whereas a fund, you know, it'd typically be multiple investors, if that makes so sense. So let's break it down here. So you have almost like a joint LLC. By the way, I'm in Canada and we can't do LLCs, you know, for our listeners. I understand it as you can start a corporation, leave liability on the side and do like this direct tax pass through. So it's a huge way to kind of boost yourself. If you're in the States, I would look into it. Mm -hmm. I'm not, of course, like an accountant or anything. So is the goal to find an investor, make an LLC with them? You're like the, I think in like a fund, it's called like a managing director or like you're the, you're the hands-on guy. The investor is going to get, I don't know what you're splitting if you feel like sharing, but they'll get a cut. They're the money behind it. So you're hustling saying, I'm going to make you rich. Let's go into this together. I got everything figured out. And you'll maybe build, you know, let's say one duplex with one LLC and one investor, and then just copy and paste that model seven times with seven different people. Yeah, pretty much. You hit a nail on the head for the most part. I mean, yeah. So I would essentially be the, I guess, the transition to a fund structure to compare it. So I'd be like the general partner, investors be the limited partner. So they're providing the capital. Like you mentioned, I'm kind of doing all the work. It's like I got everything figured out. Not really, but I got majority of the stuff figured out. I just need the capital. And that's where the investor comes in. Um, the only thing is that with some of the investors, we have multiple properties. It's not just one duplex per investor. Like some one investor has eight, one investor has two. So, but um, yeah, for the most part, you hit the nail on the head. Yeah, that's actually, you know, I, I totally forgot the terminology, but you're right. The LPs and the, the managing or the general partners. So mm -hmm. do you mind me asking the split? Are you taking 20%? Do you take higher? What's the pitch? What's the like the normal in the industry? Just educate our listeners, if you don't mind. For sure. Yeah. I mean, again, when I started this, I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know about funds or real estate, private equity structures, any of that. So essentially what I did is we just did a straight split 70-30 in favor of the investor. But from my end, I wasn't taking any fees or any sort of anything like that. I guess in a typical fund structure, it's usually, you'll hear two and 20 a lot. So 2% asset management fees, so 2% on typically whatever equities invested. So if the investor is bringing in a grand, in this case, in a traditional fund, they would get you know 2% of that. And then 20% equity, so upside, is it's kind of a typical structure. So again, in my case, because I'm not taking any fees, we just did strictly 70-30 split in favor of them. And um, the way I figured that out was just, I just gave them enough equity to where they were making or projected to make, you know, somewhere, yeah, around 40%. And that seemed reasonable enough. So figure if they can get there with 70%, then they would be fine with it. Right on. Let's just pause for a second. And I got to say how clever this is because not enough money has got to be one of the most common, not even problems, but things people say. And then they stop. Pick any ambition and 
people will use that as an excuse. So you literally said money is not the problem. It's finding the right people to partner with. That's super brilliant. It's amazing. So let's, I love that. I love that so much. So I'm curious how the first investor, where do you find this person? Is it, you know, someone you networked? Is it online? Friends of friends? Did you just Google? Where's the investor one? How, how does that conversation look like? Yeah. So investor one, I mean, I guess to give context, like I knew friends and family didn't have any money. So I was like, okay, that's out the window. But I was in a bunch of these real estate Facebook groups. Um, if you guys have heard of bigger pockets, it's kind of a bigger, you know, common, uh, I guess, popular in the US in terms of like real estate education for like beginners. And so I was in a lot of those Facebook groups. And I think that's where I found the first one. There's a few different Facebook groups where I found the the first like three investors. So they were in these Facebook groups. I was basically targeting investors who lived in kind of high cost of living areas. So, you know, on the coast, obviously, California, New York, different price points in Houston. So my kind of pitch was, hey, you're 50, 60K, you know, can't even buy you, you know, shoebox where you live, but you can essentially build a whole entire duplex if we get the construction financed more or less. So that was the pitch. I only need about 60 grand to make this work. And I'm doing all the work and you just have to essentially sit back and I'll send you updates from from there. So that's kind of how the initial pitch went. Where do I wire the money? That's amazing. <laughs> so Toronto, where I'm from, is known, it's got to be up there. Rents are like about 2,100 Canadian, you know, a little bit lower if you go to the outskirts. But, you know, back to like cost of living, there's a huge problem in Southern Ontario where, just to give you an idea, so, you know, half an hour outside of Toronto, there's a suburb called Milton that used to be farmhouse and it hit 1.1 million for a starter townhome. It's insane. So, you know, Toronto is average, got to be one five two million, like in the city. The levels are absurd. And Donovan, just so you know, I'm not going to get political, but the common thread I hear, which is true, because, you know, I grew up in the last... 10, 15 years trying to figure out this whole thing. And I think people get punished for not getting into something. So the cliche way is buy a house, build equity. And that safety and stability has been ripped away from people because things are so expensive. The Mm -hmm. thing I'm going to say that besides the whole, like you're obviously hacking the system, you're killing it. But I think why people don't try is because when everything goes up, people just give up. And I think wages have stayed more or less flat. So I'm just going to kind of, you know, wrap up the point by saying, I'm pretty sure the advice I was given, which is college degree, quote unquote, good job. No one was measuring house prices, how fast they're going up. And that advice wasn't that good. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's this new wave like yourself and, you know, you're saying you're not originally from Houston. So was that part of the Facebook group that said, hey, take a look at Houston. Is that how that area came up as like an idea for you? No. So actually, the reason why I was in Houston, again, when I so I went to school for um, petroleum engineering, and so the, all the oil jobs are in Houston. So that's where my full-time gig was out of college. And so I just started in Houston because that's where I still live. So that was more or less the reason was just because I already lived here. Yeah, I'm not originally from Houston, from Minnesota. Housing's not as uh, bad as Ontario, but there's similar just difficulty in terms of affordability. So that's one thing I liked about Houston was that, you know, it's still relatively affordable. No, all things considering for a major city, I mean, the new construction stuff we're doing, each, you know, three bedroom, two bath, each side will rent for like, you know, 1400 1500 bucks. And that's, you know, brand new. Everything's under warranty. 
So I think that's still pretty reasonable, which is why I think there's a good opportunity to to build because more people are going to want to live here because it's still relatively affordable. Yeah. So let's do the math. Let's call it three grand both sides together. You know, I'm mm-hmm. rounding up a little bit, but, and yeah, there's probably other expenses, but you know, if you have a, is it right? Did I get that right? That it's about 60,000 to build, build one of them? When I say 60,000, I mean the way it was 60,000 investment from the partner because the 60,000 would buy the land in cash. And then we would use the land as collateral for the construction loan. Okay. Oh, that's clever. Funny you say that. So my realtor, shout out to my agent in the area. So he kind of coached me through, why don't you look at a duplex as well? And I'm doing something similar, but it was still like entry level. I'm in the Hamilton area, which is, you can just picture steel factories. A lot of people don't like to live close by there. So the prices are still a little bit depressed, but um, I'm super happy with the area. But before I moved there, I was looking at pieces of land. I was like, why don't I build, you know, a wood shack off YouTube and just what's the cheapest way I can build a house? And of course, you know, the whole thing was where do I put my stuff? It wasn't really, you know, it didn't really pan out, but it was half a million dollar pieces of land. So the issue I found, which I didn't really research was um, it came down to, I think a construction mortgage in Ontario, you needed like, I think it was like 50% down or something. So the fact that you can collateralize the land, I think is super smart. What kind of mortgages are you getting on these properties to build? Yeah, so as I mentioned, the three two each side that would rent for you know gross three thousand from both units total, those are costing about two two hundred fifteen grand to build. So plus the sixty k in land and plants and permitting and stuff. So probably all in for like two seventy five, two seventy ish, and then in, like we mentioned, it'll it would rent for you know three thousand. Yeah, so. That's like a 10-year time horizon. Those properties are paid. Is your pitch kind of talking about appreciation at all? Or you just talk about how that's a long-term thing? Do you have like an exit strategy? A lot of, you know, I don't know how the real estate game works, but I think, you know, it depends on the the general partner. But what's their pitch for how long you're going to hold these? Yeah, so my pitch is the reason why I like the area where we're building in is because the numbers make sense to both sell or just buy and hold it. So I don't model anything past year one, um, which is, again, just kind of my being super conservative. I, nobody knows what's going to happen two, three years from now. Interest rates could change. People could move. There's a lot of things you know, that could happen. So I just try to give the investor idea of year one, and, and you, you can see the, the numbers from there. So for example, in my pitch deck, it's, hey, if we sell in year one, you'll make your 40% and we can go our ways. Or if we decide to hold it, we can cash out refi, you know, half your money. And then you can just make 10% cash on cash for the money that you have left in the deal. So if you have 30 grand left in the deal, you'll have, you know, kind of net three grand a year. Um, So that was kind of my pitch. It's like year one, we're fine, both scenarios, whether we have to keep it or if we have to sell it. So that's kind of what I was, that's what I was pitching. I just got a question for you, Donovan. So let's say you have an investor who decides to hold this property or properties. Now, do you guys, assuming obviously, let's say he would rent them, how would that work? Would you for get a slice from the rent or would you just own some part of the equity? And so by the time he or she or they sell the property, you get your piece of the pie. Yeah, so for me, it would be both. So I'd get a portion of the cash flow, but the cash flow wouldn't be that much. As we mentioned, it- you know, the gross would be three grand a month. So after paying for the mortgage and saving for expenses, 
I would only maybe make, you know, 200 bucks a month. But again, in my eyes, I was just thinking about in the long term, I obviously still own 30% of the equity that was created. So it would just be more of a waiting game for me in terms of until we either sell or refinance, you know, five years down the road to really realize some of that gain. You know, let's do the math here. So 30%, but on 10 houses is 300%. That's 3x on a normal property. So, you know, you've built an empire really quickly. And I just want to remind people that good things take time. So, you know, I think you have that patience to say, like, this is a longer term thing. And you're really digging in and running with it. So what I see here is that, you know, you start to build a name for yourself and they'll tell their friends or you'll get reviews. You'll build a reputation on being the guy to go to. And then, you know, at one point, people will probably start to throw money at you and maybe you change the terms. Maybe you, you know, after 10 successful builds, maybe you take 40%, maybe you take your 2% fee or something. Not that you want to change the model, but for sure. And yeah, I mean, that's ultimately be where I like to get to, to where I can charge some sort of fee just so I could maybe dig into this full time rather than because right now I'm still keeping my full time job and doing all this on the side. And if I had some sort of income in the meantime, I could really, really dig in and potentially scale it a little bit better. So yeah, for sure. But I definitely want to make sure my reputation is, you know, doing what I'm saying I'm going to do. That's really important to me. Yeah, I just want to say congrats. That's amazing. I just wanted to ask about you know, the whole construction process. So do you find a builder and then just say, okay, let's do a trial run. Are you building all these seven at the same time? Are you staggering them? What's that process like? Yeah, sure. So I'm hiring a a general contractor to obviously manage the builds, but I'm, I'm definitely managing the general contractor. So I found him essentially through networking, through some of my local Facebook groups here. I met with him initially at his job sites to get a feel for him. Then we probably stayed in touch for about six to eight months before I finally started to sign a contract with him to use. So he's doing all seven of our builds that are currently going right now. In an ideal scenario, I'd probably have at least another GC to spread out some of the the workload. But um, at at the moment, he was just the the best option. So that's kind of the way it's going now. I'm just listening to this and it's a great reminder that there's no excuse in life. If you want to do something, just this is literally just raw creativity and resourcefulness. So I'm just in awe of how cool this is. And I think you were very clever at pitching. It makes sense that you're an engineer with the whole problem solving thing, because that's like, I guess what engineers do, but you've got that pitch. You got investors to say, yeah. So were you born with that? Did you have a sales job in the past? Because just great job, I have to say. That's awesome. I appreciate that. No, no, I never had a sales job. I actually do not like sales. Like I'm intimidated by like cold calling or having to just walk up to strangers and, and talk to them. So I'm like kind of introverted. So yeah, no, I never had a sales job. I just try to be like a semi-decent person. I mean, that's that's really it. I mean, I don't try to be anything I'm not. Just try to lay out the numbers and give them my pitch why I think I can execute. If it works for them, great. If not, no worries. And yeah, that's kind of the way I go about it. Yeah, totally. And that's what it comes down to. So Cal and myself have been in sales for, you know, probably 10 years. And, you know, the first thing I teach people in sales is don't sell. So like I find the secret with building like a fund or a company, which you could say you're building a real estate empire, so to speak, 
this could quickly grow into something huge. You know, you're genuine. You generally want to build these things. It's really well thought out. And what about the research process? What got you comfortable to know that the numbers are going to work? I guess you had your first duplex. So once that started working, you just said, I'm going to go do more. Yeah. I mean, looking back, pretty naive, right? I mean, all I had was a duplex that I bought to live in, figured I could build one of them. So I was a little naive in that sense, for sure. Um, What gave me confidence was like, again, talking to the different parts of the team. So again, you know, I was talking to the GC to get an idea of the building costs, what potential pitfalls we could run into, um, the timeline, talking to the architect of what delays we could have with permitting, which is a big thing. I knew the outline of the duplex made sense and I knew there was demand for it in the area I'm building. So and then finally there was enough margin in the numbers to say, okay, even if stuff goes wrong, we're still gonna be okay. Like I mentioned, projecting, you know, forty percent net return pre-tax to the investors. So let's say stuff goes wrong and maybe they only get thirty. Well, they might not be happy with me, but you know, they're gonna come out okay. They're not gonna lose money. So that's really what I was focusing on. It's like, man, even if stuff goes terribly wrong worst case maybe they make you know 20 25 percent and you know they're still going to be okay so that's kind of what what made me have the confidence to move forward you know there's got to be a word opposite to naive and trying like being foolish and never trying in life someone has to google this or maybe in another language because there's something special about i think people call it you don't know what you don't know so you don't have bad habits you don't kind of hold yourself back how many experts think they know the right way and they're stuck in what they do, right? So, I mean, I wouldn't even call it naive, just excited to try things. And I think it's clearly setting you on the right path. So let's talk about that downside protection a bit. So do you mean that you're projecting, like if someone puts in 50,000, 10% is 5K, 30% is 15. So they'll make an extra 15 on their 50. They'll make like a 60, $70,000 exit. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah, so I guess the, the target is, yeah, I guess closer to 40%, which is what I was projecting, and that's after the split between me and them. So, yeah, they put in 50, they're ideally getting 70 back or somewhere in that ballpark within you know 12 months. And then obviously, if things were to, I don't know, extend longer or go wrong, in the worst case scenario, I wrote into our kind of operating agreement that they get all their money back before there's any cut between me and them. So. Basically, what I'm saying is things would have to go significantly wrong because at the deal level, you know, before our split, it's more of like a 60% net return. And then obviously, 70% of that is, you know, closer to 40 or somewhere in that ballpark. So there was plenty of margin for error, so to speak. And so that was a bit of downside protection. Um, And then the other side at the deal level, like I mentioned, was having the multiple exit strategies. So, you know, there's a lot of people who build homes, they, they strictly have to sell them. If they don't sell them, they're more or less screwed because there's not enough cash flow to cover the, the mortgage payment if they had to hold them. So in my case, again, that was my downside protection was, look, if interest rates go up or for whatever reason we can't sell them, we can refinance out, hold, and you'll still you know cash flow. So that was kind of my two downside protection was a lot of margin in the deal and then multiple exit strategies on the back end. Right on. And I don't know how homes appreciate, but are you kind of benchmarking one year of cash flow from rents to like how cash flow positive is 
this property against the mortgage and expenses. So we decided that let's say roughly 3000 is the, the money in. What is your expense on that construction once it's fully built? Um, yeah. So again, if once it's fully built, we would cash out refinance out of the construction loan. Um, so it would be worth obviously a lot more than what we put into it. So in that case, we would cash out some of the initial investment. So let's say we cash about half of his money. So he gets 25 grand back on the refinance. So he has 25 grand left in. And then the actual expenses on the property at that point, the mortgage, so the PITI, you know, principal interest, taxes, insurance, would probably be close to like 2100 2200 And then maybe we save a couple hundred bucks for maintenance. So maybe we're saving, let's say we have like, I don't know, 2300 2400 going out the door, keeping 600 and splitting that as cash flow each month. So before our split, it would be 600 a month in cash flow that we're, we're getting. And then they only have 25,000 left in the deal at that point. So I can imagine they get half their money back and they still own, you know, 70% of the upside. Exactly. That's actually very, very clever. And all of a sudden, I think, you know, cash flow positive is such a huge thing because I don't think people realize how much like five hundred dollars a month, even if it's split, like it's like a lot of money. You just copy and paste that a bunch of times. You'll be making once these go up two, three, four grand a month and extra money. And then, you know, all you need is one exit in five years and, you know, you make money or you can lever that up towards more units. So is there um, a pace? Because, you know, instead of going to infinity and like as many as you can, do you have a strategy to kind of make sure you don't buy too many at once or is there no such thing? There's probably a limit, an upper limit there of too much. Right now, I think I'm okay because there's, you know, a solid team in place who can handle everything. So again, you know, I'm still having my architect doing the plans and permitting. So that's taken care of. Um, obviously the GC is building. So at this point, it's just more of me managing the GC. So yeah, I mean, probably, you know, with my full-time job, probably around, you know, 10 to 12 projects would probably be my upper limit going on at the same time, at least until I get some maybe better systems in place to to manage everything. At this point, you know, it's definitely capable of handling it because all the, all the properties that we've uh, purchased in our building are within like a five minute drive of my house. So I can hit them all within 20, 30 minutes, or I can hit them on the way home from work. On the, obviously on the weekends, can hit them no problem. So it's not too difficult to get to the properties and to be able to check on how progress is going. I just want to say about, um, you know, giving that downside protection, not many, including myself, maybe at your age, didn't think much of that. Obviously, we think that, you know, we can afford to risk it. And obviously, there's always risk with things and decisions that you make with your business. But it's very, very impressive. To the fact that obviously foresee the interest rates going slightly higher, but having said that, you know, you've already accounted that protection for your investors, giving that comfort to them. And a worst case scenario, things like you mentioned, they have to go horribly wrong for something to happen. Is if anything, I think is better than any sales pitch that there is because people, what they want to do is they would like to invest, but they want to know there's security. And usually there's no much reward with higher risk, but you know, you provide them the solid numbers. And I got to tell you, this is very, very impressive. We don't have these tools. So John and I, you know, worked in Canada. I moved back to my hometown in Bahrain. We don't have some of these tools that I have available in terms of financing that you can do there in the U.S. So being able to take advantage, knowing that you have that ability to do these projects, multiple projects at a time. (laughs) I'm with John. This is very exciting to hear. Appreciate that.
Yeah, just to, you know, talk a little bit about that again, my most important metric in mind is making sure the investor's money is protected. So again, there's obviously some element of risk with every investment. So I'm not going to tell them, hey, you know, this is 100% foolproof, don't get me wrong. But, you know, I feel like I've taken enough steps to make sure at least the big picture items that I think can wipe us out, so to speak, or interest rates rising, and we can't, you know, sell the property that as a huge single point of failure that I think I've tried to account for. And again, there's probably stuff that I'm, I'm missing that I just don't know what I don't know. But I think some of the, the major items I try to foresee and, and protect that, uh, that downside for sure. Yeah, no, I think you'll get, you know, smarter as you go along. The word's more experience. So I think, you know, you come up with something once and then you'll know for 10 units or 100 units, you know, what to look out for. Right. You'll learn which investors are kind of the ones who are cool and tempered or hard to deal with. And I'm sure there's all sorts of personalities. Like you ever get someone freaking out over the phone saying, I need my money, I changed my mind. Or like, I guess, you know, do you find everyone's easygoing or are these like doctors, dentists? Who's like the personality that invests with you or just people who have a bunch of real estate and too much money? Yeah, so it's it's kind of a, a mix. Um, yeah, so one of them's a doctor. He's the one I have the most properties with. There's a guy who was just uh, retired, but he was an accountant for like 10 years. He was like 32, 33, so kind of younger guy. And just he quit to kind of just be an entrepreneur full time by just my kids coaching and sells a, a book. And he just kind of has some extra money. So he's one of them. Another guy, uh, I think he's similar to you in the sense where I think he runs a car dealership in California. Another person is actually a coworker of mine at my current company who saw what I was doing on Instagram and was like, hey, I want in on that. So yeah, I got a mix of the personalities. Yeah, all of them are both kind of goal oriented in terms of, you know, increasing their capital in a hopefully efficient manner, protecting the downside, you know, taking a little bit of risk, but again, with the idea of getting a little bit better upside. So yeah, so far it's been good, but yeah, I definitely have a mix of personalities in there. Yeah, totally. And what Cal was saying about these finance products, I'm actually not even sure, like, there probably is a way to even do this in Canada. I just never thought about it. Like I'm still blown away that you got it done with 0% capital. And I think because you avoided the fees, this was like a a big pitch. It sets you up in a spot where people don't see a leaky funnel, like, oh, they're just trying to get my fees or get my money. And because there's seemingly no downside, like the risk is reduced. I think if I had money burning a hole in my pocket, it makes sense. I can see why people do it. So it's super, super clever. Is this a common model or did you just come up with it? Did you see a YouTuber who was doing it? Where did you come up with the 0% idea or just out of necessity? Because, you know, it would take like 10 years to save money. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Like, yeah, I didn't see anyone doing it. I didn't even know you really could do it. Again, I was just like, I don't have any money. Like, this is my only option. Basically, where I was at was, again, I bought my duplex. I closed on that April of 2020. And so I graduated, you know, May 2019. So I was only out of school for a year. You know, I got a little bit of student loans. So, you know, I'm paying, working on paying those off. There's not any extra cash that's just sitting around for me to invest. But the problem was I was seeing all these deals and just essentially having to watch them go by. I was like, man, if I could just, if I just had the money, someone just let me borrow it. I know these deals could be done and executed and have a solid return for them. So yeah, it was strictly out of necessity. But now after being on Twitter, I'm realizing there's other kind of people similar to me that do this full time. So as as you guys have probably seen from, you know, guys like Moses Kagan and some of those bigger real estate Twitter guys. Twitter is how we 
got folks like yourself. So thanks again for coming on. But it's an amazing ecosystem of, you know, people wanting to do better, smart minds. And you've got like crypto, you've got real estate, you've got, you know, just entrepreneurship and like the tech space. I don't know any other platform. I guess there's like the Facebook groups, like you said, but, you know, it's got to be the most focused media platform, I would say, where it's bi-directional. So, you know, we're talking, we're sharing ideas and people, you know, it's a very humble platform in a lot of ways where, you know, people go to learn, even the best go to learn, I find, right? Like there's always someone you can learn from. So I think it's so amazing that you can just kind of follow in that people actually share time out of their day. Hey, look, this is what I came up with. Or there's a lot of crazy threads you can follow, right? Of like so many, like just ways to think about life I find. So how long does the typical construction take a year, year and a half? Yeah. So actually the whole project cycle ideally is, is about 12 months. So maybe like four to five months for permitting and then maybe another six months or so for construction. Right now, construction has been taking a little bit longer. So like right now, it may be closer to seven to eight months. But um, yeah, ideally somewhere in that six to eight month time frame for construction and then maybe four months or so, four or five months for the plans and permitting to be approved through the city. Awesome. And when is your first of these homes going to be built? Yeah, it's actually done like next week. So we're supposed to close on it next week. Just got to pass a few final inspections. So that'll be the first one of the seven that's completed. That's amazing. Just want to yeah. congratulate you. That's awesome. Yeah, same. Must be the best Congrats feeling in the world. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, well, I still got to get to the closing. It won't feel real until I get to that closing table. But uh, <laughs> I know, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Popping champagne bottles all over the empty house and, you know, celebrating. Yeah, that's cool. So I'm just thinking out loud, you could almost, like, I'm guessing this contractor is going to build seven or 10 of the same units. Is that correct? Like the that's same correct. Unit? Makes sense. So what if you did like drone shots or photos, throw them all over your website, and then basically people know what the finished product is like. I'm just thinking like, this is exactly how you get, you know, more people to say yes. And it just seems like, is the Houston area big enough to, do you see yourself going to a hundred houses in the next five years? Would you do something like that where you keep growing? Like you 10 X everything? Yeah. So that, that's the goal is either to, to kind of scale it up a bit off to get a little bit more strategic in the area just because the prices have ran up on the land so much. I think everyone kind of figured out what I figured out in terms of like, hey, these duplexes can essentially cash flow if you refinance and hold them or they'll make you a solid return if you sell them. So now land prices have went up because of that. So I'll have to get a little bit more strategic in terms of buying in that area as well as potentially looking at other areas. But yeah, I think I can get to, you know, do, do 10, 20 a year for the next five years. And so maybe end up with 70 to 80 at the end. I don't know, five, 10 years from now, something like that. I'm I'm open to my, to what the end goal is. My end goal is again, like some sort of financial freedom, but uh, I'm flexible in the way to get there. That's awesome. Just want to say kudos. This has just been so eye-opening and I'm super pumped because I didn't know this existed an hour ago and you're, you're absolutely killing it. You're doing an amazing job. So thank you. That's amazing. Definitely keep in touch with, you know, your progress. We'd love to have you back on and any uh, last closing words about, you know, the future or things you're working on, anything you want to share? Yeah, no, I just think one thing that I guess a lot of people ask me kind of like, how did you even know to do it? Or why did you think you could? And I don't, 
like to take no for an answer. There's a way to do something. I just haven't figured out how to do it yet. That's kind of the way I see every problem in the world is I may not know how to or someone else may not know how to, but there's a way to do it. I just haven't found it. So I just kind of go with that mindset and it seems to seems to help me figure stuff out. Natural born leader, sales entrepreneur, all those in one. Just super awesome, super awesome job. Where can we find you online? Do you want to plug a Twitter or anything like that? Yeah, Twitter and Instagram are probably the, the main two. I'm on Twitter at Donovan Builds, and then Instagram at Donovan underscore 651. It's my hometown area code. So yeah, feel free to reach me on there, DM me, however I can help. I'm happy to. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome back anytime and definitely keep in touch. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much. Thanks, Donovan. Hopefully we can have some international investors in a few years partnering with you. This is super exciting. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> yeah, one day above that for sure. Thank you guys. <laughs> awesome. Care. Cheers. So with that said, let's wrap up today's episode. Thank you for listening to another episode of Methodical Millions, where you can better your future and better yourself. Thanks, everyone.